We're going to turn to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 31 through 37. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can grab a hold of that. It's going to be page 860. LJ is going to come, and she's going to read for us from God's Word. Good evening, everybody. Okay, so Luke 4, 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teachings, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. All right. Thank you, LJ. And I hope you have your Bible still open. And if you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right. There should be one right in the pew, um, back of that pew that's in front of you. And uh, let's open them up, if you would, because I'm going to show you a lot of really specific uh, parts of this passage. And I'm going to give you a lot of background, a lot of uh, uh, Jewish cultural background, so that it kind of puts some flesh on the bones for you so that you can understand what's really happening in this story that LJ just read, this uh, gospel event of Jesus in Luke 4. So let's get started in it. In Luke 4, Jesus has traveled north to the region of Galilee, and he's going to be there, did you know this, for 18 months. He's going to be there a year and a half. He's really laying out the gospel in this region that's about 50 miles north to south, 25 miles east to west. That's how big the Galilee region was. He's going to spend significant time there. And we saw that he had gone first to Nazareth, or at least in Luke's gospel, he goes to Nazareth, and that was his hometown. And we saw that they rejected him and that they tried to kill him. And now he goes to Capernaum, which is a city of Galilee, so he's still in the Galilee region. And that town, even though he grew up in Nazareth, Capernaum becomes his ministry headquarters. This is where his launching pad will be. This is where he keeps returning over and over and over. Goes out all over Galilee, comes back. Sometimes goes down south to the Judean part of Israel, 80 miles south, and then comes back and always comes back to Capernaum. Now, if you've ever thought of Galilee as a backwater area, then you may be surprised to know that it was actually in Israel the center of social, political, and financial gain. All of the roads in that region came through Galilee. It was incredible 
amount of trade that was happening. And of course, on the backs of those roads came the latest news of the Roman Empire, came the latest fashions of clothing, came the latest movements in religion. Everything went through Galilee. It truly was the center within Israel of first century life. The roads of that entire region all ran through Galilee. So you would hear Greek being spoken. You would hear Hebrew. You would hear Aramaic when you went to the markets. You would see Syrians. You would see Jewish people. You would see Roman people. You would see the Parthian people. They're all mixing freely. So this is really the melting pot. You don't get the melting pot down where Jerusalem was. It's up north in Galilee. It's very progressive, very modern. People would be wearing clothes out of fashion, clothes in fashion, clothes that had not even yet come into fashion. And this was really a trendy, dangerous, alive place, and it was perfect for the explosive ministry of Jesus. He went to Capernaum, look at verse 33 with me, or verse 31, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Look at verse 33, if you would. He's in the synagogue. So synagogue services occurred on Saturdays. Basically what we're doing actually right now, and if you're watching this online, uh, you might be watching it. Well, you certainly won't be watching it earlier than tomorrow morning when we put it online, but you might be watching it during the week as well. But this is on Saturday. This is Jewish church. They are in the synagogue. Jesus, verse 31, is teaching them on the Sabbath. Now, Capernaum, let me tell you a little bit more about Capernaum, actually the town. It was built right on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not an ocean. Kind of throws us off with the word sea. It's not salt water, it's fresh water. It's 13 miles north to south, six and a half to seven miles east to west. It is uh, Capernaum, it is a fishing port. It's actually one of 16 fishing ports on that freshwater lake. It happens to be the largest of the fishing ports. It's a prosperous center of commerce. It was a bustling town, busy town. So here we are on Sabbath day, on Saturday, and of course, Jesus would be found there. Now, this is really interesting because all through his ministry, if it is Sabbath day, Jesus is in the synagogue. If it's church day, he is in a synagogue. Now, it would be, I think, poor of me to tell you legalistically that every time the church's doors are open, you ought to be there. But I am telling you that Cornerstone, and by the way, the Northeast, is characterized by, well, you know, do I feel like going to church? Ah, I have a headache, tired, it's hot, it's raining, I'll go next week. This is what characterizes the Northeast. By the way, the Northeast and the Northwest in America are the two hardest, most difficult places to actually grow a church. And this is one of the reasons. Church is really optional. We want to get at Cornerstone where it's not that you are being compelled as in legalistically, we make you feel guilty if you're not here. That's terrible. We don't want to do that ever. We want you to be impelled. We want you to come and worship with your brothers and sisters and get involved and actually enjoy and come 
come and learn and fellowship with us. Well, it is Sabbath day, it is church day, and they are in church, and Jesus is teaching. Now, a Sabbath features the synagogue. And if you had a town of 10 Jewish men, you could start a a synagogue. If you had a town where there weren't 10 Jewish men, probably like the town of Philippi that we looked at weeks ago, they didn't have a synagogue there, it appears, probably didn't have enough Jewish men to start one. You had to have 10 Jewish men to start one. That was a Jewish law. And when you started one, that became a meeting place. It became a schoolhouse. It became a benevolent center where monies would uh, come in and then go out to those who are in need. And when you came to a synagogue service, I mean, just imagine the shofar has blown. That would be like ancient church bells that are modern. That signals the start of the service. And you hear the shofar and you you get your children. If you have children, come on, we got to go, we got to go. And you're bustling them down the streets. They don't have taxis, they didn't have cars. They walked to synagogue, almost certainly. And you're hurrying to synagogue because the shofar tell, told you it's about to start in just minutes. You walk in and the women are going to go to the, the balcony along with their children and the men are going to be on benches and they're all arrayed to where they are all facing the platform. Yes, they had platforms, and they had pulpits, and then they had chairs. You would stand, everybody would, to read the the Hebrew Scriptures, and then when the speaker, the one invited to preach, was done reading, he would actually hand the scroll back to the attendant, and then he would sit down. Everybody would sit, and then he would begin to preach. This is what's going on in synagogues all over the world. There's three main parts to a synagogue service. There's the prayers. That was a big part of it. We ought to do more of that, and that's one of the things that we're thinking about. There's a lot more prayers that would happen in the church service. Then they would do the reading of God's Word and preaching and actually singing, which we feature pretty strongly, was not featured that strongly. They would sing some, but that was not really the central part. The Word of God preached and read was the center of the synagogue service. Well, Jesus is invited to preach, and while we're not given what he preached, we don't know the sermon that he preached, we don't know the the exposition that he gave, Luke doesn't tell us what it is, we do know the effect of his preaching. Verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, everybody look at your Bibles for a moment. I really want you to see this. They were astonished at his teaching. Now, if you take notes, which I really, really recommend... I can tell you over and over and over, people who are growing spiritually in my experience almost always have a Bible that's getting worn and a Bible that's being marked up. And the more marked up your Bible is, the more the Bible will mark up your life. I've seen it over and over. So maybe you're gonna take notes. Well, that word astonished in verse 32 comes from a Greek word that means to actually strike with panic or shock. They were shocked at his teaching. Well, we would say maybe a little bit more colloquially or more modern, the teaching left them thunderstruck. Or maybe even a little bit more modern, it would be, it was mind-blowing. His teaching was mind-blowing. 
And we might think, now listen, this is probably, or at least it might be what you're thinking. It might be that uh, we would think it's because Jesus has opened up the word of God and he has shown them things in the scriptures that they have never seen before. We tend to like a preacher when we can say, wow, I never really saw that in this passage before. You know, we get bored very easily. We're Americans. We've got access to gobs and gobs of information. So when somebody's preaching and they bring something out in a way that you've not seen before, that excites most of us. So we might think that it's because Jesus gave them fresh understanding. While undoubtedly the living word of God, that would be Jesus, who actually wrote the written word of God, that's the scriptures. He did that by working upon men, 44 of them, or 40 of them, through 66 books of the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we might think that the living word of God, Jesus, who absolutely knows thoroughly every jot and tittle of the Hebrew scriptures because he wrote it, would have fresh understanding and insight. But I'm going to tell you something. Look at verse 32. Luke tells us what blew their mind. He tells us what, le what left them thunderstruck. It wasn't what he taught, it's how he taught. His word possessed authority. You see that? The effect of his teaching on those synagogue worshipers had everything to do with his authority. Well, let me take you down deep into rabbinical teaching, okay? When a rabbi gained considerable influence, a lot of people following him, he was recognized by other great rabbis as now possessing semicha. Semicha is a Jewish word. It's not the Greek word for authority here. I'm talking about rabbinical words. It's a Jewish word for authority. Semicha is authority or authoritative teaching. And with that authority, now listen to this, comes the freedom to make interpretations of the Torah, which they called the yoke. The yoke is a particular rabbi who possesses authority, Semecha, now has freedom to interpret the Old Testament law in his way. That, that way was called the yoke. So a rabbi with authority would invite his followers to take his yoke upon them, his teaching or his interpretation of the law. Now, you probably are already thinking about this. This ought to really be bringing your mind, if you know the Word of God, to Matthew 11, where Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's not the wooden beam that spans the shoulders of two oxen. There is such a thing like that called the yoke. This is a rabbinical term. Take my teaching, my interpretation of the law upon you. It's full of grace and learn from me. And because it's full of grace, I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you go to a church and you're listening to preacher, preachers preach, whether it's on a podcast or in a church, and you're day after day, week after week coming out with a weight on you, and a guilt and a manipulation on you that says, I'm never going to be good enough. I've got to try harder. And you're getting weary and you're getting exhausted because you just can't seem to do what the 
preacher says you ought to do. That's not gracious. That's not the gospel. That's not gracious teaching. That's not the yoke of Jesus. When you sit under the yoke of Jesus, you will find that it is easy and, my, and your burden is light. Why? Because the word of God points you to the living word of God, Jesus who will come into your heart through the Spirit of God, and he will enable you to do all that he asks you to do. The congregation said Jesus taught as one who had authority, meaning he has semichah. In Mark's gospel, his version of this story adds as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, you need to understand, my friends, that most people in the first century, most Jewish people could not read or write Hebrew. And even if they could, almost nobody, unless you were seriously wealthy, could afford a copy of the Hebrew scriptures. They're a collection of scrolls. The prophet Isaiah's scroll would have been 11 inches tall and probably 30 feet long, written on a parchment paper that long and rolled inward on two dowels, wooden dowels, until they meet in the middle. Nobody could afford these. So teachers were incredibly influential. Teachers were incredibly important. By the way, if I can say this, and I don't mean um, to speak disparagingly of Catholicism, but this is exactly what the Catholic Church tried to do. They vigorously opposed Luther, who wrote, copied the scriptures into German language. They didn't want the masses getting it. I'll tell you why. I mean, at the best, let me just put them in the best light. They didn't want the average person changing the word of God or misunderstanding the word of God. That's a terrible reason to keep the word of God from the average person. Well, the, the scribes felt and believed the same way. In fact, they built a fence around the law called the oral law. So around the written law, the Hebrew scriptures, they built a fence called the oral law so that no one could break in and change the written law. Well, they built it so thick, so high, that nobody among the common popular masses had a copy of the Bible. Nobody had the Hebrew scriptures. They were fundamentally, completely reliant on the scribes to teach it to them. Now, why am I telling you all this? Listen, you can't do that with me. You can't do that with Pastor Kyle. You can't do that with any preacher. You need to know the Word of God. You need to hear us preach and then know the Word of God and go back and see if what we're saying is right. The ones who taught in first century were scribes. That means they're Jewish lawyers. Okay, they're experts in the laws. Most scribes belonged to a group called the Pharisees, which you've heard about, and the revered among them were called Torah teachers. And then later, towards 70 AD, then they were popularly called rabbis, which means honored one. Now, a rabbi had three main duties. They studied the law of God. 
They wrote up rules and regulations to keep it. That's that fence around the written law called the oral law. And then they taught the oral law to the people. In fact, they taught the oral law almost exclusively. So none of the people that were in that synagogue listening to Jesus really heard anything about God's law. All they ever heard was about the commentaries of the scribes on God's law. Few rabbis had semicha, meaning that few rabbis were able to teach their own yoke, so they always quoted other great rabbis. In fact, in the words of one ancient rabbi, he said, quote, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. He fundamentally quoted constantly other rabbis. Nobody did not do it that way. They all did it that way. But Jesus didn't. He did not quote other rabbis. He taught his own yoke. His authority was in himself. He taught directly the Hebrew scriptures, the written law of God, and it blew their minds. It left them thunderstruck. Now, you can understand this probably better than you might even be realizing it right now. Just go to a church Go to a mainline church where they don't really preach the word of God anymore. They start out with the, the homily where they read a passage or they read a verse. And then I've seen them actually close their Bibles, put it under the pulpit. And then they tell story after story with principle after principle. And you sit, friends, in that kind of a church service week after week after week. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen to your soul. You're going to dry up and you're not even gonna know you're drying up. Until somebody invites you to a gospel preaching church where they open the word of God and that's all they're gonna preach and all of a sudden it's like God hooks up a fire hose to your heart and you've got living water coming back in there again and you had no idea how dry and parched you were. We have heard that over and over and over from people coming to this church from mainline churches that have been stripped of the word of God. Well, this is exactly what happened when Jesus would preach. He preached the law of God, the Hebrew scriptures, and he preached from his own authority. He would say truly, you know, for you have heard, he says, well, you've heard other rabbis tell you this, but let me tell you truly, truly, I say to you, my authority is in me. And let's go back to the Word of God. The people's minds were blown. Now, watch. You ready? Look at verse 33. There was somebody there in that synagogue that was not mind-blown. He was not astonished. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Now, let me tell you something. This isn't comedy hour. This is not the Joker being maniacal and crazy. This is not laughter, the word ha. It would be in our language, right? No, this is, an, this is a Greek way of an, an exclamation of surprise. He was startled. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Did you catch the plural pronoun that the, that the unclean spirit, that's a demon, uses? He said it twice, us. Now, let me teach you something about ancient literature. When one person speaks of many, they stand as a representative of all of them. 
So he's not saying us like there's five, 10, 20 demons in this synagogue uh, participant. He's saying us, I represent all the demons, all the fallen angels that they are. What do you have to do with us, with all of us demons? He knew who Jesus was. In fact, look, he even knew his hometown, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. He was well acquainted with Jesus. And he asked Jesus if, he's, if he is about to destroy them. A word that doesn't mean to be extinguished into loss of being, but to lose your well-being. In other words, are you about to strip our freedom away and imprison us? Unable to stop itself, the demon blows its cover. And it actually began to be a witness of Jesus. Now I've seen these things happen. Not quite to this degree. I've seen what I believe are demon-possessed people blowing their cover, and it's not because they're in the presence of some holy, revered Tim Ackley. That has nothing to do with it. It's because Jesus was being preached, and the presence of the Holy Spirit blew him, blew it out of its cover. I used to work in psychiatric work, and I had a 16-year-old boy named Rodney who picked up a billiard table Ball and threw it across a living room of the treatment center, smashing the, t the television screen right out of it. I had to restrain Rodney, and while the other staff started to come over, and Rodney, who is being restrained by me, we were taught how to do that, has tears flowing down his face, and all Rodney kept doing was saying, Satan, please give me strength to defeat him. Give me the power I need to defeat him. Man, the hairs on my soul were sky high. Unable to stop itself, he blew his cover. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Enraged. This is the middle of church. The demon screams, shrieks, shakes the man. And all the people after the demon was exorcised were amazed, verse 36. They were shocked at the display of his authority. Now, there is no mention, ironically, that they were shocked that there was a demon-possessed man in the middle of church. Their shock was directed at Jesus, and it provides a few thoughts that I think we want to consider as we work towards the end of this message. Number one, first, the power of our greatest enemy, friends, has been broken by Jesus. You need to know that. You need, this story needs to lodge that down deep in your soul. My friends, Mike and Dan, when we lived um, in Virginia, uh, we went over to visit a friend of ours, Kyle. And Kyle, who was a, a good friend of ours at college, lived in a, in a townhouse apartment. And there was a fire right next door to his the night before. We had gone to church that morning. This is Sunday morning. We'd gone to church. This is a three-story um, condominium complex. 
and we walked, we went over there, we drove over there, we're going to go out to lunch. We wanted to see how much damage had been done right next to Kyle's apartment. And we get over there, and we're walking, we see this man up in the third floor window, sitting in the window, no shirt on, long, long hair, and we stopped and we hollered up to him. Hey, what happened? Can you tell us what happened? He looks at the three of us. We had our Bibles with, him, with us. Had just come from church. He said, it burned. Well, Dan and Mike and I looked at each other and we kind of knew it burned. It's all charred and black and still smoking. It smells. We holler back up. Well, well how did it burn? And he looks back down and he goes, it burned down. We realized we weren't going to get any more answers from him. So we turned around and we left. And as we were turning around leaving, he began shouting expletive after expletive, not about us, about Jesus, with profanity towards the Son of God. We had never mentioned anything about Jesus. But there was a demon, I believe, that was agitated because Jesus lives in the three of us. And when you have proximity to unclean spirits, they're not going to stay dormant. When God's spirit moves and the spirit of Christ reigns, demonic activity stirs into motion. But Jesus has broken their power. In fact, earlier in the chapter, Jesus defeated the most powerful of all the fallen angels, Satan himself. You remember the story that we looked at a few weeks ago with the temptation? And here he defeats this unclean spirit with but a word. And this unclean spirit is one of Satan's servants. Christian, I hope you memorize this. This is very easily memorizable. In fact, I think you should. And memorize, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The spiritual forces against us have been defeated by Christ. Let me tell you what's happening right now. I really firmly believe it. There is demonic activity being stirred up all over United States with the Roe v. Wade decision. You're going to see this. And you're going to see violence against the church and persecution against the Christians. Where is that coming from? That is demonic. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Their power is broken, and it gives us great confidence. Here's your confidence. There is no fallen angel, no demon that could do anything against you but by God's permission. Do you believe that? If you don't, you will be cowed into silence. But that is true. Second, the story teaches us that curiosity is in Jesus is not the same thing as believing faith. Did you notice the response of that congregation after this demon was expelled? In fact, let me get you into the story just a little bit. Let's say that right now there is a shriek that erupts in this sanctuary. 
And by the power of Jesus, a demon is expelled and leaves this building. And you're here in the middle of all of this with all of our American modernism, with all of our scientific rationalism, where we really don't, re we don't put a lot on the spiritual scale as much as we do on the tactile scientific scale. If you can't see it, measure it, smell it, touch it, then it's, maybe it's not really real. That's American modernism. But you're here, you see all of this happen. What would be your response afterwards? Well, let me tell you what they did. And they were all amazed, verse 36, and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. See, don't you know what Jewish healers would do? They had all kinds of techniques for exercising a demon. They would try to do it by putting a very excessively foul-smelling root up a person's nose. They always believed that a demon, the ancient world believed that a demon inhabited your skull and thinking that that root would, that stench would drive the demon out of the body. That's the Jewish technique. There was another technique in the ancient world, and we know, by the way, this is true, and I'll tell you why in a minute. You would actually bore a hole in the skull of a person that you thought was demon-possessed, and if that person survived, that little disc of bone from your skull, they would put a hole in the middle of it and put a twine through it and wear it around the neck so that it would ward off that demon from trying to gain re-entry. By the way, most of them died, but we do know that some of them survived. They found uh, skeletons with holes, perfectly round holes in their skulls with bone growth. The only way you're getting bone growth is if you're still alive. Here we have in Luke 4, a demon-possessed congregant yelling in terror, shrieking, Mark says, in the middle of church, and the parishioners, here's what they do. They form a discussion group. They were all amazed and said to one another, why didn't they fall down before the one whose power and authority demonstrated itself so clearly? Where was their awe? Where was their worship of Jesus Christ? It wasn't there. And it leads you and it leads me to ask a question. What do we do when we see the wonder and the power of Jesus? You know what you get in that car accident that you know and you were told you should be dead and somehow you make it out with almost no scratches. What do you do with that? Do we love to talk about Jesus more than we actually love to be with Jesus? Well, can I be really honest? I think that one right there characterizes the modern church. Oh, we love to learn. We love good preaching. We love a good book. We love a good Bible study. We love to know more and more and more. But do we love to love and worship Jesus? Are you growing? And you're laying down your life and saying, God, you have my will. 
Are you growing in, hey, I really want to do this in my life. I want to make this change in my life. I want to pursue this in my life. But God, you know what? I want to lay this down before you first, and I want to ask you, what do you want me to do? And I'll adjust my expectations to that. Almost nobody does this. And neither did that congregation. See, God really isn't very pleased when a glimpse of his son moves us to talk about it and debate it rather than worship and obedience. Third, and I've only got one more after this, there seems to have been no concern for the one just delivered. No one's talking about him. No one's rejoicing for him. No one's coming around him. Jesus never wants our love and worship of him to cause us to overlook the life of a sufferer. When somebody is set free, we should rejoice and we should come around and help them get their lives back on track. A man is set free from a life ravaging demon and no one seems to be talking to him. No one seems to be gathered around him. No, they're discussing, they're debating. How could this happen? Who is this? How could, they, how could he do that with a word? Well, now it begins to ask us a question. Do we see people struggling all around us in the midst of a worship service at church? And are you coming around them? Are you helping sin-broken people get their lives back on track? Or as soon as we get done with our worship service, you head on out and we'll see you in a week. That's not the kind of church that Jesus wants. No, the church that he wants is filled with his people who labor for one another, who encourage one another, who help one another, who exhort one another, who pray for one another, who when you hurt, they hurt. When you rejoice, they rejoice. That's what community is supposed to be like. But it wasn't like that in this synagogue. Fourth and final. Seeds of faith are planted today, friends, that will never even grow until tomorrow or next month or five years from now. They're planted today, and God knows what he's doing. He's going to bring a harvest, but not today. It'll be tomorrow. Well, let me tell you about it, Luke 7. In Luke 7, we're going to meet a Roman centurion. That's the captain of 100 Roman guards. And this Roman centurion, we're going to learn there, was actually the one that bankrolled the building of this very synagogue. In fact, the Jewish elders of Capernaum begged Jesus to come heal this centurion's favorite servant. And the reason or the motivation they gave to Jesus is that he is a really good man and he built us our synagogue. He was loved in Capernaum. He was generous to the Galileans there. But before Jesus could even get there in Luke 7, the centurion, this captain of a hundred soldiers, sends him a message saying, I too am a man of authority, and I know you have but to speak one word, and the healing for my servant will happen. Now, friends, listen. Where did that Roman centurion get the faith to believe that 
about Jesus. Could it not have been that in the very synagogue that he built for the people that he loved, he heard of the authority. He heard of the power that Jesus exercised by a word over a demon as he freed that man from a terrible, horrible bondage. And it gave him the faith to amaze Jesus. Jesus said, I am amazed at this man's faith. You see, Christian, God is planting seeds of faith in your heart, even right now in this sermon, even as he works in your life, even as you get into the word of God, and one day there's going to come blowing into your life something in which that seed of faith that was planted will break through the surface and give you the faith and the trust and the belief you will need in that moment. But it was planted earlier in your life. That is why you and I must be in God's word. All right, now let me, as I said last week, I'm going to land the plane. Can you see the good news of the anointed one given on that synagogue day? Don't you remember what he said earlier in the chapter? I have come, he quotes Isaiah, I'm the anointed one, I have come. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now listen, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The anointed one, Jesus, was sent to preach the gospel. That God can save and deliver the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed. And his coming signaled that God is for you. He's not against you. God's favor is here. It's not too late. You can turn to him and believe and be saved. So all that remains, be about one more minute, maybe two, all that remains is for you to be honest right now. And you get the luxury of that because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not doing an altar call. You can be as honest as humanly possible right now. Are you in bondage to a sin that you cannot get free from? To be honest. Is there a demonic power, perhaps, that has rutted that sin so deep that you don't even know there's a demonic power? And I'm not Christian. Listen, you cannot be possessed by a Christian, but you can be oppressed and you can be obsessed by demonic. You cannot be possessed by a demon, rather, but you can be obsessed and oppressed. They can come against us. And they're really, really good. They're really good. They know your weaknesses and they know mine better than we know our own. They've been watching them your whole life. They know the trigger points. They know the temptations to bring. They know the weaknesses of your flesh. They know the anger that you have. They know the disappointment with God that you harbor. You never tell anybody about it, but it's there and it's created a crack in your faith and they know how to widen that crack. 
do you have unbelief and doubt that you cannot seem to overcome? Is there an anger and a bitterness in you? You cannot seem to let it go. It's ruining your friendships, ruining your marriage, ruining your job, ruining your life. You are exactly the one that Jesus came to set free. Don't you believe that? Don't you trust that? The year of the Lord's favor is here now. And he can save you. So come to the one who can set you free. Believe in him and he will deliver you. Do you believe that? There's a lot of people that I work with that don't. You know what our job is, Christian, if you believe that, is to come and let them borrow your faith. Encourage them, in other words. Embolden them. Walk with them until they've got the belief that you do. they got the faith that you do. And don't leave them captive. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord, I love preaching about your son. Father, I love to preach about Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. Lord, because the message is so hope-giving and the message is so alive. And Lord, I thank you, Father, for sending your son. And I thank you that you have told us that your favor is still here. We are still in the year of the Lord's favor. Father, you are setting captives free. And there may be some that yet they don't believe. They're still captive. Lord, would you do a work by your word? Let your word go forth with authority and open up their blind eyes, Lord. Open up their heart. Walk them into freedom. And may now the day of their salvation be the day that they experience life. We thank you for Jesus. He is so amazing. And we get to sing another song about really laying down our lives to that Jesus, surrendering to that Jesus. Lord, may we take that serious and not leave here or stop this online service until we lay down our lives to you by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.